Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference Digest. Yes, we're going to try and take all of the October 2022 General Conference and make it into a digest of 60 minutes. 10 hours, 5 sessions, 36 talks in 60 minutes. Are you ready? Let's go. President Oak starts off the lineup on Saturday morning with a talk titled Helping the Poor and Distressed. While Elder Oaks mentions three examples of charity work done by non-Mormons, the Mormon God gets the credit for inspiring all charity work through the light of Christ. Elder Oaks said these examples do show that God inspires many organizations and individuals to do much good. But that comes later in his talk. Elder Oaks first brings up the new church calculation of their charitable donations, which has stayed steady for a number of decades at around $250 million per year. Then in 2021, it suddenly shot up. Elder Oak said, a few months ago, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints reported for the first time the extent of our humanitarian work worldwide. Our 2021 expenditures for those in need in 188 countries worldwide totaled $906 million, which Elder Oaks clarifies for those in his audience who are not good at math. He says almost a billion dollars. But there's a secret here, a secret that Elder Oaks doesn't reveal. The reason charitable donations shot up from $250 million to $906 million in 2021 is because the church decided to add fast offerings into the calculation. I repeat, the church is not spending any more in charitable donations in 2021. It simply shifted the fast offerings over into the charitable donations column. This is what Elder Oaks is pleased to call the church having, quote, reported for the first time the extent of our humanitarian work worldwide. It's a shell game. But the reason this talk is first out of the chute is likely because of the criticism the church has deservedly received for having over $150 billion in the bank and doing so little with it to help relieve suffering. The church is not relieving any more suffering. It's just cooking the books. For more information on the financial skullduggery the church is engaged in as far as their reports of charitable donations go, I encourage you to visit widowsmightreport.wordpress.com. That's widowsmightmitereport.wordpress.com. Elder Dieter Uchtdorf comes second in the lineup with his talk, Jesus Christ is the Strength of Youth. Here, the brand new for the Strength of Youth pamphlet is introduced. Elder Uchtdorf says it focuses less on rules and more on principles while hastening to add, the Lord is not saying, do what you want. I have heard from sources I trust that the new pamphlet does indeed focus more on principles than on rules to the extent the old pamphlet did. But the rollout of the new pamphlet should not be done in such a way as to throw the old pamphlet under the bus, together with the church leaders and prophets who put it together and promoted it. But that is not the way that Elder Uchtdorf does it. Yes, they do get thrown under the bus. Here's what he said. But it is wrong, repeat wrong, to focus only on rules instead of focusing on the Savior. So obviously, if it was wrong to focus only on the rules like the prior pamphlets did, and the prior prophets who promoted it, then it does appear that the prior pamphlets pamphlet was out of the way and also those prophets who supported it. They were wrong in focusing only on the rules instead of focusing on the Savior. This is what I mean by throwing them under the bus. Also, this is another in a series of steps the church has taken to make it less onerous to be a Latter-day Saint. The problem is the church has created a story about people who leave the church that they are leaving because they don't want to keep all the commandments. They want to sin. This is largely not the case and certainly not the case with me. But it appears the church is believing its own storyline. And so, if people leave the church because it is too difficult, then making it easier should stem the tide and bring members back to the pews, right? What the church has yet to learn is that people largely are not leaving because the commandments are too difficult. 
and so making them easier will not bring them back. Instead, the church has to start telling the truth about itself, and the leaders need to start telling the truth about themselves. That is their only hope. Do what is right. Let the consequence follow. The third speaker is Tracy Browning, who is apparently the first female African-American to speak in General Conference. There was much rejoicing and celebration over this event, even though it is 2022. On the other hand, I know the church is late to the Civil Rights Party, but they have to start sometime, and it may not be completely fair to criticize them for finally doing something important like this, even if it should have been done a long time ago. As to her talk, Sister Browning's is unremarkable. She likens her prescription eyeglasses to Jesus, which she has to use to see clearly. What is she looking at? Why? Jesus, of course. So, in only a mildly confusing way, Jesus becomes both the lens through which she looks and the object at which she looks. Jesus makes Jesus clear. She also warns us against being like the ancient Jews in the way they practiced their religion, being all caught up in the law of Moses so that they didn't even realize it was totally obvious it was all about Jesus. Now, this is a common trope in the LDS church and in Christianity in general. But even though it is common, we have to recognize that it is generally anti-Semitic. And also one of the reasons that Christians have not always got along so well with Jews for the past 2,000 years. Elder Rindland is next with a talk called A Framework for Personal Revelation. With apologies to Elder Uchtdorf, Elder Rindland likens personal revelation to being an airplane pilot and how an airplane pilot needs to stay in his own lane or stay in his own runway. Feasting on scriptures is the first element in the framework of his talk about personal revelation. The second element is the part about staying in your own lane, which means you can receive revelation only about your stewardship. Here the obvious example of Hiram Page is mentioned, although no mention is made of his peepstone. He then tells the following odd story, which really sounds like he is condemning what Joseph Smith did. Here's the story. Years ago, I received a phone call from an individual who had been arrested for trespassing. He told me it had been revealed to him that additional scripture was buried under the ground floor of a building he tried to enter. He claimed that once he obtained the additional scripture, he knew he would receive the gift of translation, bring forth new scripture, and shape the doctrine and direction of the church. Sound like Joseph Smith at all? Elder Renlund says, I told him that he was mistaken, and he implored me to pray about it. Well, like we do about the Book of Mormon? No. Elder Renlund says, I told him I would not. He became verbally abusive and ended the phone call. Elder Renlund concludes, I did not need to pray about this request for one simple but profound reason. Only the prophet receives revelation for the church. It would be contrary to the economy of God. Yes, that's the expression he uses. It would be contrary to the economy of God for others to receive such revelation, which belongs on the prophet's runway. So what are the only things that we are entitled to receive personal revelation about? Personal revelation rightly belongs to individuals, he says. You can receive revelation, for example, about where to live, what career path to follow, or whom to marry. Wow, we get to choose where we live, what career to have, and whom to marry. Thank you so much for your mercy, great Mormon overlords. Maybe we should be grateful. Women in the LDS Church haven't always been able to choose whom to marry, and today they still have precious little to say about what career path they follow. The third element of Elder Renlund's framework is we can't seek revelation for that which has already been revealed. He tells an unlikely story of a person who got revelation from God to support his family by committing embezzlement, then anticipate the audience's reaction by bringing up the story of Nephi slaying Laban and says that story is different in part because Nephi knew it was a commandment of God. But didn't the embezzler also know the same thing? This hardly seems like a distinction that's worth mentioning. Elder Renlund considers the story in the Book of Mormon about Nephi slaying Laban problematic though. He says no simple explanation of this episode is completely satisfactory. 
an interesting admission. The fourth element is not to ask for revelation on something you have already received revelation on, or revelation that God has already given. And he gives the example of Joseph Smith going to God three times about whether Martin Harris should be allowed to take the 116 pages. Once God has answered, stop asking. That's the moral of the story. But what about another story from the Book of Mormon involving Nephi? It was Nephi who asked God for the same revelation that his father had received on the tree of life. And guess what? He gets it. This doesn't seem to fit well into the idea of not asking for revelation on what God has already revealed. And I have to ask, how does this square with the revelation on the policy of exclusion in 2015? Why did the apostles continue to ask God about this policy as they said they did, resulting in its reversal three and a half years later? And why was it the apostles claiming to continue to ask God? Okay, Doesn't that conflict with this whole idea of not asking for revelation on a subject where God has already revealed his will? There are too many exceptions to this rule for me to take it seriously. But Elder Renlund does get the award for having the biggest cluster of a talk in General Conference. Elder Rafael Pino is next. He tells a story of customs that seem strange to others but are normal for the culture in which they are found. He talks about chili pepper being put on coconut meat. Except he doesn't say meat. He actually says flesh. These are his words. After drinking the water, my wife asked them to cut the coconut and bring her the flesh to eat. Period. End of quote. Am I the only one who finds that a little creepy? Also, he tells a story about sugar on avocados. Elder Pino embraces cultural diversity only to make it line up with President Nelson's comments about our new normal being to follow the commandments. Guess what should be part of our normal lives? One, scripture study. Two, prayer. Three, attend church. Four, attend the temple. Who knew diversity could be so uniform? Next, Elder Hugo Montoya, you killed my father, prepare to die, speaks about the eternal principle of love. This is a talk about how it is that God still loves you even when horrible things are happening to you. He says, even when we do what is right, the circumstances in our life can change from good to bad, from happiness to sadness. God answers our prayers according to his infinite mercy and love and in his own time. In every conference, there will be a certain set of talks saying how God will bless you if you are obedient, and then a counterpoint set of talks saying that God doesn't always bless you for being obedient. But don't worry, death is coming for all of us. And if God didn't get around to blessing us in this life for our obedience, we just know he will bless us in the next life. That is what faith is all about. Elder Ronald Rasban next talks about his mission, Book of Mormon, and how he read it and his testimony of it. He tells stories about how President Nelson hands out copies of the Book of Mormon everywhere he goes, just like a latter-day Johnny Appleseed. But all of these stories involve President Nelson giving a Book of Mormon to important dignitaries. Then Elder Rasban tells us that he has handed out the Book of Mormon to dignitaries. We have to do the same, he says, and flood the earth with the Book of Mormon. Yes, he actually uses Ezra Taft Benson's expression, flood the earth with the Book of Mormon. Message to Elder Rasband, the 1980s have called. They want their talk back. Closing out the Saturday morning session, President Nelson responds to all the recent news stories about LDS members and even leaders being charged with and convicted of child sex abuse. The AP story from Arizona where a member was abusing both his daughters and putting videos online. The bishop called the hotline and was told to not report it to law enforcement. And the abuse continued for years before the perpetrator was caught by law enforcement with no help whatsoever from the church. President Nelson, of course, mentions none of these details. Details. Instead, he says how much he grieves when anyone is harmed or abused and how much the Lord grieves when anyone is harmed or abused. President Nelson acts like he is a third-party observer with no power to change the policies and practices of the church over which he presides. But that's okay, because nothing needs to be changed. Here's how he puts it. For decades now, the church has taken extensive measures to protect, in particular, children from abuse. There are many aids on the church website. I invite you to study them. 
Well, that's good to know, President Nelson. I guess with all these extensive measures the church has taken for decades to protect children from abuse, everything must be running smoothly, and all the news stories that pop up every week, it seems now, about Mormons molesting kids must be wrong. Thanks for the clarification. The Saturday afternoon session commences with President Iring reading off the roster for sustaining of general authorities, Area 70s, and general officers. Something interesting happened this time because as I was listening carefully, I noticed that there is a difference between the way the names of the First Presidency are stated for sustaining versus everybody else, including apostles. The First Presidency gets every single one of their names mentioned, first, middle, and last. There are no initials. Here's how President Iring said it. It is proposed that we sustain Russell Marion Nelson as prophet, here and revelator and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Dallin Harris Oaks as first counselor in the first presidency, and Henry Binion Iring as second counselor in the first presidency. As I say, everybody else is initial city, except for the first presidency, and only the first presidency when they're being read as members of the first presidency. As soon as the first presidency is done, the very next thing is to sustain Dallin H. Oaks. Now he has the initial, not the middle name. Dallin H. Oaks is president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and M. Russell Ballard as acting president. So even if you're the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, you don't get your full name read. You get the initial treatment. Even if you're the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and you are actually serving as a first counselor in the first presidency, like Dallin H. Oaks. So it seems like the first presidency has different ways of differentiating them, distinguishing them from the Quorum of the Twelve in a way to draw focus to them and show their superiority. And this is one that I only now just saw. And I wondered, if I'm just seeing this now, does this mean it's the first time it's happened? Answer, no. I did some research. This goes back, apparently, to 1995 when Gordon B. Hinckley became president. Or should I say Gordon Bittner Hinckley became president. Prior to that, the first presidency is read, we get initials. After that, the first presidency is read, we get full names. And maybe it would be a good thing to read the full names of everybody because President Eyring had a little trouble with initials, at least the initials of D. Todd Christofferson. Now, I don't know D. Todd Christofferson personally like President Eyring does, and I don't rub shoulders with him on a regular basis in church meetings. But I can still remember that his first initial is a D. D. Todd Christofferson. For some reason, and it may have had to do with trying to read insufficiently large letters off of a teleprompter, President Eyring said his name was R. Todd Christofferson. R. Todd Christofferson. R. Todd Christofferson. R. Todd Christofferson. So this is an easy mistake to make. I mean, it's not like he knows these guys personally or hangs out with them on a regular basis. I don't know who this R. Todd Christofferson guy is, but he just got sustained as an apostle by the entire church membership. R. Todd Christofferson should head to the church office building in Salt Lake City immediately to claim his prize. And then I find out that when we get to the end of the reading of the names, they're not even going to read all of the names that they're putting out there for sustaining. They're just going to tell you where you can find some of them. Here's the way President Eyring put it. It is proposed that we sustain the other general authorities in Area 70s, including six new Area 70s announced earlier this week on newsroom.churchofjesuschrist.org. Once again, this shows that the sustaining votes of the membership are just formalities. We can't even be bothered to read all the names to you. We will now sustain general authorities by reference. The first talk of the Saturday afternoon session is President M. Russell Ballard, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve. That's why he gets the initial. Titled, Follow Jesus Christ with Footsteps of Faith. 
Elder Ballard has the choir sing the song Faith in Every Footstep from the sesquicentennial celebration of the Mormons arriving in Salt Lake Valley in 1847. This celebration was in 1997, and the song was written for that celebration. It is now the 175th anniversary, so President Ballard will just recycle a talk from 1997. While the 1980s want their talk back from Elder Rasband, the 1990s want their talk back from Elder Ballard. Elder Ballard brags a bit about his ancestors, as he is wont to do, and how they came over the plains and were pioneers. But he also says that Joseph Smith was a pioneer, and so is President Nelson. We can all be pioneers by going on missions and following Jesus, with drumroll please, faith in every footstep. This reminds me of an old jingle from the 1970s. I'm a pioneer, she's a pioneer, he's a pioneer, we're a pioneer, wouldn't you like to be a pioneer too? The next talk is Beauty for Ashes, The Healing Path of Forgiveness by Sister Kristen M. Yee. Sister Yee tells the story of Abigail from the Old Testament and how her husband offended David, that would be Abigail's husband, offended David by turning him away when David's men were begging for food. Then she went and interceded with David when he and his men were marching to kill her husband and pretty much everything else in sight. Abigail buys off. David by prostrating herself in front of him and saying lots of nice things and giving him all the supplies she could gather. Sister Yi now makes this into a type of Christ, which of course it was never meant to be. I mean, it is the Old Testament. But inasmuch as twisting Old Testament stories into types of Christ has been a long-established pastime for Christians over the past 2,000 years, I won't falter too much on this. And if we must have types of Christ in the Old Testament, perhaps it's not a bad thing to have a woman finally be a type of Christ in a talk given by a woman. Of course, she stops the story about Abigail and David a bit short, omitting the part where God strikes Abigail's husband dead 10 days later and David immediately sends for Abigail to make her one of his many plural wives. Sister Yi uses this story to talk about the importance of forgiveness and makes the common misstep of going so far as to talk about forgiving anybody who has done anything to you and even quotes President Nelson to this effect. Here's what she says. President Russell M. Nelson, in her obligatory quote from the president, has taught that the Savior offers us the ability to forgive. Now she's quoting President Nelson. Through his infinite atonement, you can forgive those who have hurt you and who may never accept responsibility for their cruelty to you. It is usually easy to forgive one who sincerely and humbly seeks your forgiveness, but the Savior will grant you the ability to forgive anyone who has mistreated you in any way then their hurtful acts can no longer canker your soul. So the message is forgive anyone who has mistreated you in any way. That covers a lot of ground for any kind of abuse. So if you don't forgive the person who abused you, it is because the Savior hasn't given you that power. And if the Savior hasn't given you that power, it is because you aren't righteous enough. This is just another way of re-victimizing the victim. Even though Sister Yi says you have to be patient with yourself and give yourself time, the mandate to forgive is still there. Sister Yi even quotes Richard G. Scott, who famously talked about accepting responsibility for the part the victim played in being abused. She caps it off by sharing a personal story of her abusive father, which she says she shares with his permission. It's a good thing to know we have to get the permission of an abuser to talk about the abuse. But it appears that her dad has gotten better and is no longer as abusive. Sister Yi shares her journey in coming to forgive her father through the power of Jesus, which is great in everything, but also cements her point that she is an example to follow. And if we can't do the same thing to our abusers, the fault is with us. 
More guilt is on the way with this next talk by Elder Paul V. Johnson called Be Perfected in Him. He gives a long story about his son Aaron who had a blood disease and was helped through technology. Nothing about God. Nothing about priesthood blessings. It was the medical technology that saved Aaron and Elder Johnson makes no bones about it. But he does use it as an illustration of a gospel principle as we all knew he would. Aaron was saved through his brother's donated blood. You can almost see it coming, can't you? Aaron couldn't save himself but needed help from his brother. This is like, hmm, Jesus? For the transplant to work, Aaron also had to do everything the doctors told him to do, even if it was difficult. This is likened to how we have to do everything church leaders tell us to do in addition to receiving the atoning blood of Aaron. I mean Jesus. Even so, Elder Johnson appears to have a grace-centered approach to the Book of Mormon because he recognizes that we do not change our own hearts, as many other speakers and leaders intimate, but that this must be done by God alone. And yet, he falls into the old trope of talking about a change of heart that everywhere in the Book of Mormon happens in an instant and saying, it is a slow process that will not be completed in this life. This is not what the Book of Mormon teaches, but the LDS Church has to teach it because there are no longer any miraculous conversions and changes of heart as recorded over and over again in the Book of Mormon. This alone should tell us something. The reason church leaders tell us the change of heart is a slow and gradual process that is not completed in this life is so we won't notice when it is not occurring. The next talk is by Elder Ulysses Suarez called In Partnership with the Lord. This talk gets the prize for best gaslighting in the entire general conference. Elder Suarez claims over and over again that women are completely equal with men in the LDS church, even though it is clear to the most casual observer that such is not the case. I mean, can a woman become an apostle like you, Elder Suarez? The restored gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, proclaims the principle of full partnership between woman and man, both in mortal life and in the eternities. But can a woman be an apostle, Elder Suarez? To be fair, Elder Suarez appears to be talking about the equality of men and women in an LDS marriage, and not the equality of women in the LDS church. But to say that women in an LDS marriage are equal is just as much gaslighting as to say that women in the LDS church are equal. And even though Elder Suarez has to say that men preside in the home and women nurture, he still insists that this amounts to absolute equality. This talk is being given in order to help people understand that even though the LDS church with its male-only priesthood is set up to ensure women are in an inferior position to men, that is not really the case at all and women are completely, totally, and unequivocally equal with men. Elder Suarez can pick up his gaslighting award on the way out. The next talk is by Elder James W. McConkie III, and they sought to see Jesus, who he was, is the title. Elder McConkie was called as mission president in 2013 to the Czech-Slovak mission and made it a point to focus on reading the five Gospels with his missionaries in order to learn about the real Jesus. It was not Jesus as we wanted, he said, or wished him to be, but rather Jesus as he really was and is. This is an interesting sentence. In what way is the Jesus he discovered in the Gospels different from the Jesus he wanted or wished? I always thought the Jesus of the Gospels was pretty okay as he is. He then elaborates upon the story in Mark 2 about the four guys bringing their friend with palsy on a stretcher to where Jesus is teaching in Capernaum. They can't get to Jesus because so many people are around him, so they go up on the roof of the house, break open a hole in the roof, and lower their friend down so Jesus can heal him, which he does. Elder McConkie then gives us a homily on how the four friends help us understand how to be true faithful disciples and missionaries. The next talk is Building a Life Resistant to the Adversary by Elder Jorge F. Zabalos. He, Elder Zabalos, is a civil engineer and tells a story about how he learned to make buildings that could withstand earthquakes, not anti-seismic, because his professor said that makes no sense. 
Earthquakes will go on happening regardless of the buildings we construct, but seismic resistant, not anti-seismic. God has prepared a structure with all the things in it to make it seismic resistance, including scriptures and prophets. He then uses Jesus as an example and inexplicably now says that Jesus was anti-Satan. Yes, he uses that word. Jesus was anti-Satan. But doesn't that conflict with what he just said about anti-seismic? Just because Jesus is anti-Satan doesn't mean that Satan has no more power in the world. I think a little consistency in our terminology would help this talk. Anti-seismic buildings, excuse me, Seismic resistant buildings may get cracks from earthquakes, but they remain standing. This is, of course, likened to the cracks we may get from our earth life and represent difficulties and doubts. But if we are faithful, we will continue to remain standing, which basically means that if we continue to be observant Mormons, we will continue to be observant Mormons. Next comes the doctrine of belonging by Elder R. Todd Christofferson. Excuse me, <laughs> Elder D. Todd Christofferson. In the final talk of the session, Elder Christofferson tells us that the LDS Church started with a lot of white people but now has all sorts of members. Hashtag diversity. Here's how he puts it. Having been given this privilege, we cannot permit any racism, tribal prejudice, or other divisions to exist in the Latter-day Church of Christ. The Lord commands us, be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. We should be diligent in rooting prejudice and discrimination out of the church, out of our homes, and most of all, out of our hearts. Now, these are all nice sentiments, but why are you talking to us, the members, when it is you, the leaders, who are causing the divisions in the church? Sure, we could all do better at this, but what I object to is the insinuation that the leaders are not primarily to blame, and primarily the ones who need to take this message to heart. He goes on and tells a story about an infertile sister who didn't feel she belonged in the church. He quotes this line from her. In the church, there are widowed, divorced, and single members, those with family members who have fallen away from the gospel, people with chronic illnesses or financial struggles, members who experience same-sex attraction. You knew that was going to make the list, didn't you? Members who experience same-sex attraction, members working to overcome addictions or doubts, recent converts, new move-ins, empty nesters, and the list goes on and on, apparently. I am glad that people with same-sex attraction, otherwise known as gay, are being mentioned, but why does it have to be in a list of horrible things such as chronic illnesses and financial struggles and addictions? While this infertile sister can be accepted at church for who she is, LGBTQ people can be accepted in church only for not being who they are. So good, must repeat. While this infertile sister can be accepted at church for who she is, LGBTQ people can be accepted at church only for not being who they are. Elder Christofferson goes on, A second facet of the doctrine of belonging has to do with our own contributions. Although we rarely think about it, much of our belonging comes from our service and the sacrifices we make for others and for the Lord. Excessive focus on our personal needs or our own comfort can frustrate that sense of belonging. Whoa, hold on by our babalui. We feel we belong in the church because of our service and sacrifice. So in order to continue to feel like we belong, we have to continue to serve and sacrifice. That last line is especially chilling. Quote, excessive focus on our personal needs or our own comfort can frustrate that sense of belonging. So don't focus on what you need or want. You need to focus on what the church needs and wants from you. That is the way to belong. Elder Christofferson later says, by this philosophy, anything that one finds difficult is a form of oppression. Here it is put in a nutshell. The church believes that the reason people are leaving the church is because they find it too difficult. So at the same time, the church is tinkering with things to make it less difficult. See to our church. Elder Christofferson is telling them to sacrifice everything for the church, 
even their own needs. And to get the deepest sense of belonging, we have to make covenants and keep them. By the way, this whole covenant path thing is really just another way of saying we need you to go to the temple, which is where all the important covenants are made. Then once we have you committed to obey those covenants, you need to remember your commitment and not break those covenants. You don't want to be a covenant breaker, do you? Now we move to the Saturday evening session. The first talk is given by Bishop Cause, our earthly stewardship. He gives a talk about being good stewards of the earth and conserving resources, which is not a bad idea. Strangely, he includes this quote from a French author. When by mutation a new rose is born in a garden, all the gardeners rejoice. They isolate the rose, tend it, foster it, but there is no gardener for men. That's the quote. The reason I find this quote unusual is because whenever a new rose appears in the garden of the LDS church, it is not tended to and fostered. Instead, it is surrounded, derided, and stamped into oblivion. I honestly can't tell if Elder Cause is oblivious to this or if he is trying in typical Mormon passive-aggressive manner to get his kinder and gentler ideas across in conference. Regardless, I do not think his talk is going to move the needle. The next talk is called Wholehearted by Sister Michelle D. Craig. She gets award for the most sickly sweet primary voice in conference. I put on five pounds just watching it. She tells a story about women pulling hand carts and encourages the women as well as the men to continue pulling no matter what. If you are going through hell in life in spite of your best efforts to the LDS church, it doesn't mean you are doing something wrong. This is all part of the plan. She tells the story of how when she was a kid, her parents told her brothers to tear out the carpet in her sister's bedroom. They played a prank removing all the furniture other than the bed in which their sister was asleep. They tore out the carpet and left a note that they had moved. The point of the story is that her seven-year-old sister woke up, read the note, and cried all alone. Later, the sister said all she had to do was look up and open the door, and she would have seen her entire family was present and had not moved. My take on this, sometimes if you read something by someone you hold to be an authority, you can go on believing it in spite of the fact that if you just looked around, you would realize it is completely False. As a side note, I don't understand how her brothers could tear out the carpet in the sister's room with her bed still in it, which would presumably be on the floor. But never let facts get in the way of a good story. That is something I definitely learned from Mormonism. The next talk is given by Elder Kevin Pearson. Elder Pearson recalls an experience taking the sacrament and reflects on the words willing in the prayer to lay the groundwork for his talk. Here's how he puts it. And if we embrace the narrative that the church consists primarily of outdated or politically incorrect social policies, unrealistic personal restrictions, and time commitments, then our conclusions about willingness will be flawed. Here he does a good job of laying out reasons he thinks people are leaving the church, political stances of the church, i.e. social issues, and too much time and restrictions required. Again, we are getting the idea that people leave because it is just too difficult to be a Latter-day Saint. At least he throws in social issues, and there is some truth in that, that people are leaving because of the church's stance on social issues. He goes on, We would do well to spend more time in meaningful conversation discussing our concerns with a loving Father in Heaven. Sorry, it's hard not to laugh at that and less time seeking the opinions of other voices. We could also choose to change our daily news feed to the words of Christ in the Holy Scriptures and to prophetic words of His living prophets. There is just too much information out there, apparently. We need to take our questions to God, who will no doubt tell us all about it, and resolve our questions in some unspecified manner. The goal is to not share those concerns with other members, so God is probably a safer place. We also need to not be taking in information from secular sources, but from church-approved sources. And again, he says, far too many of us live in a virtual 
virtual world awash in entertainment and messaging hostile to divine identity and belief in Christ. Can you say Radio Free Mormon? Elder Pearson tries for the Alliteration Award and then guilts us with our kids and grandkids in this line. Casual and inconsistent covenant keeping leads to spiritual casualty. The spiritual damage is often greatest on our children and grandchildren. Thanks for the extra heap and helping of guilt there, Elder Pearson. Way to try and guilt us with our children and grandchildren. Memo to Elder Pearson, it's not working on me. The next talk is called Courage to Proclaim the Truth by Elder Denelson Silva. He talks about how he was converted to the church in 1983 while in college, then goes on to encourage young men to serve a mission, and young women can too, if they want. By the way, every time the general authorities say that young women can serve a mission if they want, they're not only showing the inequality between men and women in the LDS church, they're also emphasizing the fact that the men do not have a choice. If the women have a choice, the men do not have a choice. It's just a way of re-emphasizing that same idea. He also encourages senior couples to serve missions. This is a big push now for the senior couples. And I have heard speculation that the church will have to be relying on senior couple missionaries to staff all the empty temples they are building. They are not only building temples where the population of temple goers does not support it, but a more fundamental issue is how they are even going to staff these temples in order to keep them open. Enter the senior missionaries. I have also heard a report from South America that the announced but not yet built temples, over 60 at this point, are being held over the heads of members by visiting general authorities as a method to coerce members into paying their tithing. As in, how can they expect to have the blessing of a new temple if they do not pay their full tithing? And so we see that announced but unbuilt temples can have their uses after all. The last talk in the Saturday evening session is by Elder Neil L. Anderson called Drawing Closer to the Savior. He likens us to wheat in comparison to tares, which will be all around us. We need to strengthen our faith in Jesus, which is done in three ways. First, by immersing ourselves in the life of Christ, where Elder Anderson says something that sounds like evangelical born-again doctrine. Quote, as we better experience his love, we love him even more, and very naturally better follow his example of loving and caring for those around us. As I say, that sounds very much like born-again doctrine, but don't worry, he doesn't really mean it as he proves by his next entry in what we need to do to follow the example of Jesus, which is, of course, go to the temple and make covenants. Elder Anderson then uses this as a justification for President Nelson's announcing and building temples in locations that don't need them, temples that will largely stand empty and unused. Quote, Can we see why the Lord would direct his prophet to bring the holy temples closer to us and allow us to be in his house more often? I mean, how can a church justify shutting down wards and combining stakes? At the same time, they are increasing the number of temples. It makes no sense, but it is the one thing they can control. They may not be able to persuade more people to join the church, but they have the resources to build temples like hell isn't having any. And in this way, the gap between Mormonism and Scientology is increasingly closing. And under the heading of the myth perpetuated by some leaders that they don't know what other people are going to talk about in general conference, Elder Anderson says this. He's usually the one who tips his hand on this. Quote, both President M. Russell Ballard earlier and Elder Kevin W. Pearson just moments ago spoke of President Nelson's prophetic warning that I will repeat again. I'm not going to repeat it again. I'm getting sick of hearing President Nelson quoted in this general conference. I don't think there was any person who talked who did not quote President Nelson. And that includes President Nelson, who even quoted himself. 
So my question here is, is Elder Anderson just ad-libbing this comment about Elder Kevin Pearson just moments ago in this session, in other words, speaking about a quote from President Nelson, is that is he just ad-libbing that or does he really have access to everyone's talk and the schedule prior to finalizing his comments? That is my guess. If you're an apostle, you get to see everybody's talk before you write and give your own talk. And I think this statement by Elder Anderson supports that idea. Even though we sometimes hear general authorities say they aren't able to see anybody else's talk. And so therefore, any synchronicity between the talks must be the result of inspiration, right? We now move to the Sunday morning session where Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gives the opening talk called Lifted Up Upon the Cross. For some reason, Elder Holland wants to take us on a trip down memory lane with a talk about why Mormons don't use the cross. He says that the cross didn't come into being in Christianity until the 4th or 5th centuries. So the fact Mormons don't use the cross is another proof it is true. Here's what he says. In this sense, the absence of a symbol that was late coming into common use is yet another evidence that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of true Christian beginnings. But having slammed every other Christian church that does use the cross as not having roots in true early Christianity, he tries to place a piece of raw steak on the black eye he has just inflicted. He actually does this in a preemptive move, mentioning this in advance. Elder Holland says, As I attempt to explain why we generally do not use the iconography of the cross, I wish to make abundantly clear our deep respect and profound admiration for the faith-filled motives and devoted lives of those who do. Elder Holland also seems unaware that the cross was prominently used in the LDS Church in various structures and ways up into the early 20th century, which raises a problem. If today's church that eschews the cross proves Mormonism true, what about the Mormonism of the first 80 years or so that did use the cross? Was that not true Mormonism, Elder Holland? Best not to go down that road, I suppose. Looks like a wrong road to me. Elder Holland then says the cross we use in Mormonism is the crosses we bear. He then goes on to give an impressive litany of the power of prayer in the lives of the Latter-day Saints, by which I mean an impressive litany of how prayers are not answered. Here's how he puts it. I know children with severe physical disabilities, and I know the parents who care for them. I see all of them working sometimes to the point of total exhaustion, seeking strength, safety, and a few moments of joy that come no other way, i.e. no answered prayers. I know many single adults who yearn for and deserve a loving companion, a wonderful marriage, and a home full of children of their own. No desire could be more righteous, but year after year such good fortune does not yet come i.e. no answered prayers. I know those who are fighting mental illness of many kinds, who plead for help as they pray and pine and claw for the promised land of emotional stability, i.e. no answered prayers. I know those who live with debilitating poverty, but defying despair, ask only for the chance to make better lives for their loved ones and others in need around them, i.e. no answered prayers. I know many who wrestle with wrenching matters of identity, gender, and sexuality, i.e. no answered prayers. I weep for them and I weep with them knowing how significant the consequences of their decisions will be. Now, there he's referring specifically to those who have issues of identity, gender, and sexuality. And I have to give Elder Holland extra points for getting in a gratuitous slam at the LGBTQ community in that last line. As I listen closely to General Conference, it is like it has turned into one giant version of Elder Bednar's 2013 talk, Faith Not to Be Healed. But instead of faith not to be healed, it is faith not to have our prayers answered. It takes one level of faith to pray to God and have our prayers answered, I suppose. But the greater faith, the greater faith is to pray to God and not have our prayers answered, as this talk illustrates. Thank you, 
Elder Holland. The next talk is by Sister J. Annette Dennis. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Sister Dennis starts out with a story about a guy named Jack with a bird hunting dog named Cassie who took Cassie to a hunt and then was embarrassed by Cassie not doing what she was supposed to do. He treated her harshly and abruptly only to find out later she had a massive gash on her chest and leg. How Cassie received these wounds is not explained, nor is it explained how Jack could be so close to his dog in proximity, with Cassie insisting on staying right by his side without once noticing all the blood from these gashes. But again, never let facts get in the way of a good story. Anyway, the talk is about all the wounds that people carry. He just says scars that never fell to wound. And these wounds often explain what people do or don't do. And we need to keep that in mind when dealing with people. Not a horrible message as far as it goes, that we should not judge, but try instead to help. Elder Gong is next with his talk, Happy and Forever. Elder Gong is possibly one of the most boring speakers the LDS Church has ever produced, and that is saying something. Elder Uchtdorf is likely the best speaker, but what does it say when the best public speaker in the LDS Church is the only one for whom English is a second language? Now that technically isn't true anymore since the advent of Elder Suarez, but Elder Uchtdorf is still the best speaker. Two stories are given by Elder Gong about doing genealogy for temple work. These are strange stories. Here's the first one. In telling a story about a friend. But my friend did not want to be sealed to her father. He was not a nice man to my mother. He was not a nice dad to his children, she said. My dad will have to wait. I do not have any desire to do his temple work and be sealed with him in eternity. Now we can all understand that there could be real reasons why a daughter of an abusive father would not want to be hooked up with this guy forever and would not want to do his temple work. But this story is told in such a way as to encompass within its moral all fathers and all family members regardless of how abusive they have been and in what way. He goes on, for a year she fasted, prayed, spoke a lot with the Lord about her father. Finally, she was ready. Her father's temple work was completed. Later she said, in my sleep my dad appeared to me in a dream, all dressed in white. He had changed. He said, look at me, I am all clean. Thank you for doing the work for me in the temple. The moral seems simple. No matter how abusive your father or other family member was or in what ways they abused you, no matter how horrific, your duty is to forgive them and do their temple work. The second experience related by Elder Gong is even stranger. Another friend, he says, this guy has a lot of friends. Another friend researched diligently his family history. He wanted to identify his great-grandfather. Early one morning, my friend said he felt the spiritual presence of a man in his room. The man wanted to be found and known in his family. The man felt remorse for a mistake for which he had now repented. Now remember that the man felt remorse for some kind of mistake which he had made, but he's now repented of it in the spirit world, apparently. The man helped my friend realize that my friend had no DNA connection with the person my friend thought was his great-grandfather. In other words, my friend said, I had discovered my great-grandfather and learned he was not the person our family records said was our great-grandfather. His family relationships clarified, my friend said, I feel free, at peace. It makes all the difference to know who my family are. Okay, this one Elder Gong is going to have to explain to me. The pivotal point of this story is that this deceased great-grandfather had made a mistake, otherwise unspecified, for which he had now repented. The friend finds out this isn't really his grandfather and appears relieved. 
I feel free at peace, he says. It makes all the difference to know who my family are. So the gist of the two stories seems to be that if you have a terrible ancestor, you have to do the work for them unless you are lucky enough to find out that he isn't really your ancestor after all. And how did this second person find out, the second friend of Elder Gong's find out, that this wasn't his great-grandfather? It sounds like it was by feelings and not by research and documentation, by the presence of a man in his room who helped him realize there was no DNA connection. He didn't even need to send blood samples to the lab. Maybe the lady in the first story should have had a similar feeling so she wouldn't have to do the temple work for her dad. I mean, how does it feel as a victim of abuse helping the abuser get to heaven? The next talk is Patterns of Discipleship by Elder Joseph W. Citati. The existence of God is proven by nature, and nature cannot be denied. Therefore, the existence of God cannot be denied. So the reasoning seems to go in Elder Citati's talk. Also, the existence of intelligent life proves there is a God. He speaks of three patterns. One, the pattern of humility, which causes us to do everything we are supposed to do as Mormons, according to him. Number two, the pattern of love, which causes us to do everything we are supposed to do as Mormons. And three, the pattern of service, which, you guessed it, causes us to do everything we are supposed to do as Mormons, it is interesting in General Conference how all roads lead to Salt Lake City. It seems that there is no virtue that does not cause us to do everything we are supposed to do as Mormons. What about the pattern of integrity? I guess it didn't make the list. The next talk has a similar title. It's called Lasting Discipleship by President Stephen J. Lund. He talks about over 200,000 youth having attended, especially for youth gatherings, this past summer and how great it was. He segues from this to the story of a missionary he met who was returning home and who was concerned about what he should do to remain strong after his mission, to which President Lund gives a lengthy reply, including, keep doing at home what has worked so powerfully for you here and carry the spiritual momentum into the rest of your life. Another quote from President Nelson, by the way. The very fact that this story is being mentioned in General Conference suggests the church sees returned missionaries going inactive as a real problem that has to be addressed publicly. We know from anecdotal evidence that missionaries are returning home in numbers greater than heretofore seen. But you know it's a problem that is finally registered on the radar of the church when they have to address it in General Conference. The next talk is Put on Thy Strength, O Zion by Elder David A. Bednar. Elder Bednar examines the parable of the wedding feast in the New Testament and unsurprisingly focuses on the wedding garment, intimating that it is the temple garment and that if we are found not wearing it, we will be cast into outer darkness. He focuses on the tagline of the parable, many are called but few are chosen, to apply to the guy at the feast without his wedding garment, even though that tagline has most natural application to all the people who were invited to the feast in the parable, but didn't show up. And so the halt, the maimed, the poor were invited instead, i.e., many are called, but few are chosen. See how much sense it makes when you put it in proper context? But this is a very Mormon thing to do. And it goes back to James Talmadge, whom Elder Bednar quotes, by which I mean to hear the word garment in the scriptures, conclude it is talking about temple garments, and then do everything you can to twist the passage to make it apply to temple garments. In the process, Elder Bednar appears to have plagiarized vast swaths of his talk from a little-known Christian author named John O. Reed, R-E-I-D. O is the middle initial. When I first heard about the claim that Elder Bednar plagiarized part of his talk, I said, this is probably overblown, that Elder Bednar mentions John O. Reed's name in his talk, and he may have just forgotten to say open quote and close quote while he was speaking. 
It was only later, after reading the column by Jana Reese of Religion Dispatches, that I realized this was much more serious than I had originally thought. The original published version of the talk had no quotation marks around the borrowed material, and it was only after it was brought to the church's attention by Jana Reese that they added the quotation marks and a slew of footnotes to the same one-page source by John Reed. Unfortunately for Elder Bednar, adding quotation marks after you have been caught plagiarizing doesn't make you innocent of plagiarism. It just shows you got caught. Elder Bednar might claim ignorance, except that he was the president of an institution of higher learning, i.e. BYU-Idaho, where plagiarism is supposed to be taken very seriously. Finally, why is Elder Bednar quoting this guy in the first place? Who is John O. Reed? From the Jana Reese article, Reed was a leader in the Church of the Great God, a sectarian group that broke away from the worldwide Church of God founded by the late Herbert W. Armstrong. This would be like the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, quoting an apostle of the LDS Church in a talk that was broadcast to the world. Actually, it's worse than that, because John O. Reed is part of a splinter group of the Worldwide Church of God. So it is more like the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, quoting not an LDS apostle in a public address, but Denver Snuffer. It is hard to overlook the fact that Elder Bednar, in a talk devoted to parables, finds himself in a bit of a pickle. Ahem. Next, President Russell M. Nelson makes an obligatory appearance to give a talk titled Overcome the World and Find Rest. President Nelson gives a curious talk in which he says we find rest by working as hard as we can to do everything we are supposed to do as Mormons. So rest equals hard labor. Makes sense to me. President Nelson is redefining words to mean something completely different from what they actually mean. Rest equals hard labor and the gathering equals everything in the world except for actually gathering people together. This is also the talk in which President Nelson said, in coming days, we will see the greatest manifestations of the Savior's power that the world has ever seen. The greatest the world has ever seen, President Nelson? That's a tall order. Greater than parting the Red Sea? Greater than the plagues of Egypt? Greater than raising the dead? Are you kidding me? Church leaders can't even tell a miracle story in general conference that is more than a coincidence, and they can't tell an account of a real priesthood blessing that actually cures somebody. President Nelson is in desperation mode now, pulling out all the stops to keep people from leaving the church. It has now been 10 days since President Nelson said those words. We are now in the coming days. I'm not seeing anything. Coming days does not mean coming weeks. Words have meaning. Coming days does not mean coming months, or coming years, or coming decades, or coming centuries. But no matter how you frame it, it simply is not going to happen. What it really means is, is never. It has been 2,000 years since Jesus died, and we are always just on the cusp of Jesus coming back. It is the asymptotic curve of Christianity, a curve that is forever approaching its goal, but never reaching it. President Nelson is the prophet of miracles that haven't happened yet, but will happen in the future. Now we enter into the fifth and final session of General Conference, the Sunday afternoon session with the talk Legacy of Encouragement by President Henry B. Eyring. President Eyring tells a story about the death of his mother that suggests he has never seen the Savior. In the days she knew she was about to die, President Eyring says, she talked with me about the Savior as she lay in her bedroom. There was a door to another room near her bed. She smiled and looked at the door when she spoke calmly of seeing him soon. I still remember looking at the door and imagining the room behind it. What does this even mean? That his mom thinks Jesus is behind the door to the next room, so President Eyring thinks so too? Why didn't he just get up and go and open the door? Is this really what we would expect of a man who has seen Jesus in the flesh? We all know that his mother must have received multiple priesthood blessings, but what was the result? President Eyring tells us, she is now in the spirit world. 
Next, President Eyring tells us how it is that apostles such as Elder Holland can publicly tell miracle stories that end up being untrue and have to withdraw them. One might think an apostle would seek to verify a miracle story from somebody else before presenting it, especially presenting it publicly. But here is what President Eyring says about it. Out of deference to those I know personally and their families, I have chosen not to seek to verify the details of their struggles or to speak of their great gifts publicly. Okay, now we get it. Miracle stories are always more impressive if you don't seek to verify the details. And if you're not going to seek to verify any of the details, it is probably the best course to simply speak about them in vague and generalized terms so there's nothing to fact check. Thanks for the safety tip, President Eyring. The next talk is The Answer is Jesus by Elder Ryan K. Olson. Elder Olson tells a story of his six-year-old nephew. He asks his nephew how he got so smart, and the nephew says, Jesus. This is a laugh line, and the audience laughs. Elder Olson goes on to show he is not kidding. He really thinks Jesus is the answer to every question. He says the answer to the simplest questions and to the most complex problems is always the same. The answer is Jesus Christ. Every solution is found in him. Well, it sounds easy enough. Let's give it a try, shall we? Why did Joseph Fielding Smith tear out the 1832 account of the first vision and hide it in his safe? Answer, Jesus. Why did the Nephites write their entire thousand-year history down on gold plates for Joseph Smith to not even look at them when translating? Answer, Jesus. Why did Joseph Smith practice polygamy with teenage girls and other men's wives? Huh, the answer is Jesus, of course. Elder Olson is right. It works like a charm. Jesus really is the answer to every question. The next talk is That They Might Know Thee by Elder Jonathan S. Schmidt. Jesus has lots of titles in the scriptures, and Elder Schmidt has assembled over 300, which he then calls names of Jesus. Because the sacrament prayer says we are to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus, Schmidt says we should do that with all of Jesus' titles in the scriptures. These include Good Shepherd, High Priest of Good Things to Come, Holy One of Israel, and Faithful and True. Yes, all those are names, believe it or not. And without any sense of irony, Elder Schmidt includes the same yesterday, today, and forever as one of the names of Jesus. The irony being that while the LDS Church and its teachings may be the same today, they are certainly not the same yesterday, and I will bet you dollars to donuts it won't be the same tomorrow. The next talk is called The Virtue of the Word by Elder Mark D. Eddy. It's a rather simple talk. It can be summarized as follows. The Book of Mormon is a great book because it is the Word of God, and because it is the Word of God, it has virtue in it. We should read the Book of Mormon every day to partake of its virtue and make us more virtuous. See, I told you it was a simple message. The next talk is by Gary E. Stevenson called Nourishing and Bearing Your Testimony. Our testimonies are very important and we must get a testimony, keep a testimony, and share our testimony with others. Elder Stevenson quotes President Oaks saying, Some testimonies are better gained on the feet bearing them than on the knees praying for them. Here Elder Oaks echoes Boyd K. Packer who said a testimony is to be found in the bearing of it. Once again proving that there is nothing Elder Packer said, no matter how misguided, that President Oaks will not adopt as his own. The next talk is by Elder Isaac Morrison called We Can Do Hard Things Through Him. Elder Morrison received a patriarchal blessing that said he would have many children, but he had only three. And the third was a difficult delivery for his wife. When the third child was 18 months old, he and the other two children were outside playing. Elder Morrison's wife had repeated impressions, something was wrong, and doesn't go to check herself but asks her husband to check, which he doesn't do. Finally, the husband goes outside and finds the 18-month-old drowned in a bucket of water. It is strange the wife is receiving the revelations from God and not the priesthood holder. It is strange she doesn't go outside and check for herself. 
Strange that she tells her husband she is receiving impressions for him to go outside and check the children, but he does not. It is a strange story all around, and somewhat subversive of the generally accepted priesthood hierarchy in the LDS Church. But what of the patriarchal blessing that they would have many children when they could medically have only three? No problema. Elder Morrison later became a mission president with his wife, and they count all the missionaries as their children. The case is solved. The next talk is Be True to God and His Work by Elder Quentin L. Cook. He quotes the well-known line from his great-great-grandfather Heber C. Kimball, The time will come when no man nor woman will be able to endure on borrowed light. Elder Cook, however, does not quote this other famous line from Heber C. Kimball, Brethren, I want you to understand that it is not to be as it has been heretofore. The brother missionaries have been in the habit of picking out the prettiest women for themselves before they get here i.e. to Salt Lake City, and bringing on the ugly ones for us. Hereafter, you have to bring them all here before taking any of them, and let us all have a fair shake. I would really love it if sometime somebody actually did quote that line from Heber C. Kimball in General Conference. Elder Cook then likens the borrowed light on which no man or woman can live in coming times to the three kingdoms of glory, noting that the sun, which represents the celestial kingdom, has its own light, but the moon, which represents the terrestrial kingdom, does not have its own light, but merely reflects the light of the sun. For some reason, Elder Cook ends the analogy there and does not go to the telestial kingdom, which is represented by the stars, presumably because the stars, like the sun, produce their own light. He then talks about Alma and his advice to his sons. Elder Cook says, while Alma had received a manifestation where he saw an angel, this is rare. It is important to note seeing an angel is rare for Elder Cook because none of the apostles has seen an angel, according to Elder Oaks in a recent young adult presentation in Washington State that was recorded. So it would be unseemly for members to be seeing angels when the top leadership has not. Hence, we have the spectacle of a church founded on angelic appearances and ministrations, together with the promise of their continued appearances to the faithful, being poo-pooed by an apostle of Jesus Christ. Elder Cook then quotes President Nelson as saying, Daily repentance is the pathway to purity, and purity brings power. Elder Cook does not quote the apparently contradictory doctrine of Joseph Smith, Repentance is a thing that cannot be trifled with every day. Daily transgression and daily repentance is not that which is pleasing in the sight of God. Finally, we come to the last talk of General Conference, Focus on the Temple by President Russell M. Nelson. And of course, President Nelson uses this time to announce new temples. We currently have 168 operating temples and 53 new temples under construction and another 54 in the pre-construction design phase. He announces 18 new temples on top of all of these. This makes no sense. Membership is at best holding steady and most likely shrinking in terms of active members. And the number of temple recommend holding members is a percentage of those who are actively going to church on Sundays. We all know this. So why is the church shutting down wards and selling off chapels at the same time President Nelson is announcing more temples than ever before? Clearly something doesn't add up. At a minimum, we know that the membership numbers of the church are not supporting the building of these temples. This appears to be a vanity project for President Nelson to establish his legacy. It is similar to the vast building projects of Ramses the Great, which, by the way, included temples. Well, that is it for 2022 October General Conference, all in under 60 minutes. Thanks for listening. If you like this format, please let me know in the comments section. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.